Welcome back to Food Safety EDU. This is Jeff Feldman, Mr. F. This episode, today I want to share my take on the history of waterborne disease and public health and the prevention of waterborne diseases. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Roger Orth uh, for his online history of the origin of public health and waterborne diseases. I found his information really interesting and, you know, it goes back 4,000 years uh, to 2000 BC. And in his notes, he's saying how northern India even had sewers and drain pipes and most homes had bathrooms. And that's 4,000 years ago. Interesting. And some of the ancient Greek records recommend water treatment. And they knew that they could purify water with heat. And they practiced uh, sand and gravel filtration and boiling and straining. So they were aware because, uh, you know, people got sick back then. People still get sick today. In his report, he also mentioned 400 BC that the Greeks, they had medical thought as a scientific theory of disease. The Hippocratic book on airs, waters, and places touches on some of the first examples attempting to define the causes in the relation to disease and the environment. In another report, uh, it says that Hippocrates invented water sieving, so filtering, and that he created the first filter bag, which was able to remove sediments that caused uh, bad tastes and odors, which is a lot of the things we try and get rid of now. Now we're talking about the Romans in Rome. Uh, Rome's well known for its engineering of waterways, baths, aqueducts, sewers, settling basins, and reservoirs. You know, they had 700 slaves uh, were used to maintain the sewers, which emptied into the Tiber River. Also, those slaves also maintained the public health latrines or public latrines. And at that time, the Romans were also using the Greek theory of environmental balance in climate, soil, and health when planning new communities. So if they were going to build a new town, they would look at the, uh, the climate, soil, and health uh, of that area, and they would do a whole planning session uh, before building. You know, Rome, they constructed 11 aqueducts, over 250 miles of these aqueducts, and it took 500 years to build these things. They're huge, you know, and some of them are on, underground and some are above ground. So they look like that train trestle thing. Um, and there's still remnants in Spain, uh, Turkey, Germany, France uh, that you can actually go see. In order to get the water into the aqueducts, um, Archimedes invented a screw. So it's a screw inside of a pipe. And it was meant, I guess, initially in boats and things when there was too much water in the bilge in the bottom of the boat. So they would use this screw in a pipe and you crank it and it would draw the water up through the pipe and then get rid of it. And so when there's a low lying lake or pond or something and they're going to drag the water to get into that trestle, that uh, aqueduct. They have to move it from a lower elevation to a higher elevation, and they didn't have electricity in those days, so they used the Archimedes screw to draw the water up and put it into the aqueduct. And then the aqueduct would gravity feed the water all the way to the cities and towns. And in Rome, it was uh, 250 million gallons a day, which is a lot of water, and that comes in. And then it goes to the rich people, of course. They all have their own bathrooms. And then the poor areas, it would be kind of distributed. So everybody would have to uh, share and go to a common place to get their water or go to their bath. 
on the website, the medieval medievalist.net in their uh, blog here. It says cities would spend large amounts of money on creating and maintaining water supply sources. Uh, the example is in the 13th century, uh, London constructed the conduit using a system of lead pipes. It brought fresh water from a spring outside the city walls into the middle of London. And then people could access it, could get to it. City records occasionally note expenses related to maintaining and cleaning the conduit. And during the 14th and 15th centuries, the system was expanded to other parts of the city and things grow from there. On uh, this other website, Angel Water Incorporated, so it's a water company, um, but they put together this great history, and uh, there's some pieces and parts I want to share. Um, humans have thrived, and every time they try and build a city, it's near a water supply. And if it's not near a water supply, then you have to bring water to you. So ancient technologies, the earliest attempts to distribute water across a distance was in the hillsides of northwest Persia. Slightly sloping tunnels called quanats used gravity to force the water down the lines. This method was used through the region for thousands of years, most recently in the 1930s in uh, Iran. The most famous water distribution system of ancient times was probably the Roman aqueduct. These impressive structures moved water over 20 miles to Rome from springs in the Anio Valley. The longest structure is actually 57 miles long because of the meandering path designed to maintain a constant stream of water. And in the other report from Dr. Roger Orth, he was saying that, you know, they thought it was pure and safe and they moved the water. In the Middle Ages, uh, after the fall of Rome, small cities were not able to accomplish what Rome had done, and the Middle Ages allowed for a lot of uh, epidemics because of water. Back to the Angel Water Incorporated, we talk about when the water gets to the city, it has to go through distribution lines, and it's necessary to cut from stone or brick and rubble and ancient concrete to move the water from here to there. Uh, entrepreneurs and inventors continue to test new materials as a result of uh, was cast iron pipes in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, these new pipes could maintain their integrity under intense pressure and were used in combination with another, with the steam engine, to push water from here to there. That's what I was looking for. Uh, this is on the website Water Filters, the original waterfiltersfast.com. But anyway, so they're talking about Hippocrates again and his sieve uh, for purifying water, and he made that bag and it would take out taste and odor. And then in the Middle Ages brings filtration innovation. So in 1627, Sir Francis Bacon, who was a big guy in that time frame, uh, did many, many things. But he continued water filtration experimentation, and he began experimenting with desalination of water way back in the 1600s, believing that ocean water could be purified for drinking. He used a sand filter method, and unfortunately... The exact method did not work. Luckily, uh, this did lead to additional research on water filtration as other scientists continued to explore the options. So he got going on it, and just like other people, you know, you start something and somebody else picks it up and runs with it. And, uh, you know, we have it today, but it's really expensive. But a lot of countries actually use desalination for their main water source.
the uh, invention of the microscope helps water filtration. So in 1670s, right, the Renaissance was a period of scientific growth as many scholars were working to make new discoveries. One important invention was that microscope, uh, which allowed for the close study of water. Now, it was some opticians, right, that they were trying to make really strong lenses, and somehow it turned into a microscope, which was really good. Now people could actually see the microbes and the bacteria in the water, and then they knew it was real instead of just imaginary. Uh, and then this allowed for more improvements in water filtration, uh, water filtration to remove those impurities. In the 1830s and the 1850s, in that time frame, people were, uh, it's the time frame found that the need to define public health and uh, boards of health. So the board of health, uh, you know, counties have their board of health and their health departments. But they were established back then looking into the conditions which supported the presence of communicable disease and epidemics. And so the, the historical uh, story is Jon Snow, not the guy from Game of Thrones, but Dr. Jon Snow. Uh, and in 1848 in London, he documented the cholera epidemic and established the first part in developing the theory of a contagion. This theory was also applied to other illnesses, including diphtheria, scarlet fever, yellow fever, and the measles. Jon Snow is remembered as an epidemiologist, a science that wasn't even defined back then. At that time, he studied numerous case reports showing contaminated water was the cause of many outbreaks. On this other website, the Water Filter Fast, uh, it's talking about improved filtration and water filters save lives. So during the 19th century with Jon Snow, London faced that deadly cholera outbreak. Soon officials linked the spread of cholera to drinking water. Researchers found that there were fewer cases of cholera in areas where well-designed sand filters were installed. So the filters in that area were preventing or helping to prevent the big outbreak. The scientist John Snow used a microscope to verify the presence of cholera bacteria in unfiltered water. And then soon the officials enacted government regulations and they started to do uh, installing sand filters throughout London in order to help prevent uh, the cholera. Now John Snow in his research he found that the sewage was contaminating the drinking water drinking water sources, there we go, specifically the Broad Street pump. So on Broad Street, there was a pump and they would pull the water from that and that's the source that he was finding. In this time period in London, 200 to 300 people died each week because of diseases. Others were uh, investigating as well, but neglected the point source of the infection. They had found comma they had found comma like organisms in the rice that cholera victims had in the rice water so they found comma like organisms in the cholera's victims rice water but felt it wasn't a big deal the disease spread further since isolation and fecal oral contamination routes were not addressed right so when we give our class and our our uh, lecture it's always about the fecal oral route right it, when poo gets into somebody <clears throat> they get sick so the story goes 
with Dr. Jon Snow's observations and diligence, control through sewage management, hand washing, and cleaning of food and water sources led to a tr tremendous public health breakthrough. The disease-causing pathogen wasn't actually found until 1883 when Dr. Koch isolated vibro cholera, confirming Dr. Snow's observation way back in the 1850s. So finally, the science of bacteriology from the 1880s completely changes the perception of public health and communicable diseases. Now we're going to move across the pond. So in the 1870s to the 1900s, they were in Chicago in the United States. So Chicago's epidemic of 1871 and 1872 were approximately, uh, where approximately 100,000 cases with tens of thousands of deaths were associated with typhoid. Okay. The death toll in the 1870s in Chicago was 7%. Where in New York, it was only two or three percent and in Boston also two or three percent they found that the water intake the influent in the sewage waste effluent were within one mile of each other causing the drinking water to become contaminated by the wastewater so whoever did the water lines they were drawing water in from the river as drinking water and then they were sending the sewage back out into the river but it was within a mile of each other. So the mile, all the ebb and flow of the river, it sucked in the feces back into the water system and people were getting typhoid. The Board of Health, they reported that cholera, typhoid, diarrhea, and dysentery, as well as other diseases are caused by impure and polluted waters. Yeah, it's that fecal oral route again. Uh, to remedy this, they planned and built a waterway that would divert the sewage into the Mississippi River, sending all the sewage towards their neighbors. Ouch. Interestingly enough, this is the time and reasoning for many rules and regulations in the water treatment uh, realm, uh, including the fecal coliform count and chemical analysis for various phosphates and nitrogens, uh, etc. So they're starting to, because it's affecting people, now they're starting to study it. Another website that I'm looking at is Bright Hub Engineering because I want to talk the history of chlorination as a major public health advance. So impact of water chlorination, the use of water chlorination to disinfect public water supplies, public water supplies. It began, began in the early 1900s um, in Belgium. They did it and then later in New Jersey, Jersey City Waterworks, uh, they started chlorination. So here on this website, it says the USP EPA, in an article on the history of water treatment, noted that the use of drinking water chlorination beginning in the early 1900s led to a dramatic decrease in the incidence of waterborne diseases like typhoid, cholera, and dysentery. For example, typhoid fever in the U.S. dropped from the incidence from about 100 people per 100,000 in 1900. So for every 100,000, 100 people were getting typhoid fever. Then later in the 1920s, so that's 20 years later, the incidents were 33 people per 100,000. So that dropped by, you know, two thirds. And then in 2006, 
the year 2006, there was less than, you know, there was like one person per 100,000 or 0.1 per 100,000 people because of filtration and chlorination of the drinking water. So now that we're treating the water, more and more people are uh, surviving it. So a few noteworthy events in the use of chlorine as a disinfectant prior to 1900s are in 1846, Dr. Semmelweis Institute instituted a requirement for physicians at the Vienna Hospital to wash their hands with soap and chlorine water to reduce infections and childbed fever uh, in patients. So they're, it's reducing infections and childbed fever in patients when he uh, makes all of his subordinates wash their hands right, with soap and chlorine water. In 1854, Dr. John Snow uses chlorine in an attempt to disinfect the Broad Street pump water supply in London, uh, London, which he had identified as the cause of the cholera outbreak due to sewage contamination. So the sewage was getting into the Broad Street pump water supply, and people would go there, draw their water, and they would get sick with cholera. And uh, so he, he dosed it with chlorine, which is one of the things that we do today. If we were testing the water all the time. So when I worked for the water company, we had to take tests every month. Some places more often, some places less often. It was dependent on uh, the requirements. So if you got a coliform bacteria positive, then you had to retest and you had to uh, disinfect the system first and let it sit for an amount of time and then... Uh, so one of the places I went to, it was a uh, community and they had their own well. And the well would send water up the hill into storage tanks. And they didn't want any uh, treatment on it. And so each house, they had their own filtration uh, for drinking water because there was uh, arsenic in the, in the well. So the arsenic would get to the to the homes. So they put in uh, reverse osmosis in everybody's house. Everything that they were going to drink was supposedly was reverse osmosis. <clears throat> but uh, oftentimes there was a positive. Uh, when we take the monthly test, there came back a positive uh, for coliform bacteria, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Uh, it's just an indicator, right? So they do the broad indicator test and then uh, based on the broad test, if, if this uh, coliform comes up, because it's in the environment everywhere, then we have to dose the well. So first we, uh, we chlorinate. So we would chlorinate the, the storage system, and then we would rush the water from the well. So I'd run the well back up into the tanks in order for it to mix with the chlorine. And I'd put an amount of chlorine based on the water in the, in the tanks. And the well would push the water so it would mix inside the tank. Then I would turn off the well and then gravity would bring the water back down the hill and I would open up spigots and, and uh, hose bibs at various houses and uh, at the wellhead I would uh, run that off with a, a fire hose and <clears throat> allow the water from the tanks that is now chlorinated because it wasn't previously, there's was no treatment, 
um, then it would have to come all the way down the hill through the pipes, disinfecting all the pipes all the way back down to the well and back down to the homes where I had the hose bibs open um, until I finally got a residual of chlorine. Uh, and then it would sit there, you know, for an amount of time to kill off whatever's in the pipes. Um, so that was a requirement that we had to do. That was something that I did every other month because every time a, uh, we would go and sample or I would go and sample, send it to the laboratory, it would come back positive. And then we had to do this thing all the time. It was a pain in the butt, um, but it was a thing. So now that community put a water uh, treatment system on their system and, and we don't have to do that anymore. I'm not there anymore, so I don't know, but uh, it was just getting installed when I left the company. Okay, another historical thing. In 1879, William Soper of England used chlorinated lime to treat the feces of typhoid patients before disposal into the sewer. Huh. So chlorinated lime. Interesting. To treat the feces of typhoid patients before disposal into the sewer because that would just spread in the sewer, which could contaminate into the drinking water again. In 1893, chlorine was used on a plant scale basis for drinking water disinfection in Hamburg, Germany. So in Europe, 1893, they did it at the drinking water plant for disinfection. And in 1897, Sims Woodhead temporarily sterilized the potable water distribution mains in Maidstone, Kent, England, using a bleach solution. Okay, now in the 1900s, so that was 1800s. Now in the 1900s, the use of water chlorination systems for public water <clears throat> um, began here. 1903, the first use of chlorine gas for disinfection of drinking water in Belgium. Uh, and that was chlorine gas. In 1908, the water utility in Jersey City, New Jersey, became the first in the U.S. to use full-scale water chlorination using sodium hypochlorite. Dr. John Leal, a chemist, and George Warren Fuller, an engineer, conceived and designed the water chlorination system that was put into use. In 1908, at the Union Stockyards in Chicago, uh, the Bubbly Creek filter plant began chlorination of their water supply using chloride of lime. In 1910, Youngstown, Ohio, uh, Darnell was the first to use compressed chlorine gas from a steel cylinder for a water chlorination system. It's the most common method to use in water chlorination today. <clears throat> in 1914, the U.S. Department of the Treasury enacted a set of standards calling for a maximum bacterial concentration of two coliforms per 100 milliliters in drinking water, effectively requiring drinking water disinfection and leading to a dramatic increase in the use of drinking water chlorination by treatment plants. In the 1920s and 30s, drinking water filtration and chlorination had virtually eliminated epidemics of waterborne diseases in the U.S. So that's pretty cool. The history, 1800s, 1900s, filtration. Yeah, okay, the ancient Greeks were filtering things and they were boiling water because they knew people were getting sick. Um, and then the sand filter, uh, Hippocrates made his filter, uh, the sieve, uh, and it was a potable one to get rid of tastes and odors. But then there's other things besides taste and odors. Um, and with this, now we have filtration and we have chlorination or disinfection of water systems. 
So I talk about <clears throat> disinfecting and, and one of the things we learn in water treatment and um, when you use chlorine in the water, uh, you have to filter it first in order to get rid of all the uh, organic material. So in other words, we have to get rid of the leaves and the grass and things like that. And then at the end, we want to disinfect it. Um, the thing that happens with chlorine and uh, when it's introduced to water, but if these organic material are there, um, the studies in the 1970s, uh, they realized that there's um, disinfection byproducts that happen. And some of those are negatively affecting, you know, people, some people, some people. So of all the waterborne diseases that were killing tens of thousands of people every year, you know, in certain areas, the offset is to disinfect the water. And then some of these disinfected byproducts, uh, trihalomethanes, can cause issues in people. And, uh, you know, supposedly, well, definitely it causes cancer. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, they do the best they can to save the entire um, uh, population. And it's been a huge thing. More and more people, 50%, you know, more uh, health, uh, you know, people survive longer because of the disinfection of the water. And the offset is that, you know, some people are going to get cancer because of this uh, if it's if it's not treated properly. So we have water treatment plants and they filter the water and then they disinfect it. And then there's residential home systems that, you know, if, if your water is contaminated with uh, leaves and things and it's not filtered out and you put chlorine in there, it could potentially uh, react. So do your due diligence as best you can. Uh, make sure things are filtered out first before you disinfect. Uh, reverse osmosis um, can take away, uh, you know, a lot. And it, that's the sign of the times. You still have to disinfect the piping and make sure nothing grows in there. But then when, at your source point, you may consider having the reverse osmosis on your, on your uh, drinking water at the house. So here in the United States, the EPA and the Clean Water Act of 1972 was uh, enacted. And, you know, they're doing more and more um, rules and regulations for water treatment. Um, and today, Americans benefit from technology that brings water directly to the house. However, in some areas of the country, the water may still be contaminated with pathogens and chemicals that are hard to eliminate. So we want to do the water filters. Many people are choosing water uh, to filter their own water and one efficient way is to filter water with a whole house water filter system which would be the reverse osmosis or, or other filters um, this removes chlorine microbial organic materials and chemicals water filters are also available to meet many needs for example your refrigerator water dispenser can be outfitted with a water filter ensuring clean drinking water if you reside someplace where you are unable to install your own larger water system try smaller options such as Culligan faucet filters. So <clears throat> more than nothing, always do more than nothing. Uh, you know, we're really lucky to have water piped to us and, and we take it for granted. There's uh, good things and bad things. And the history of water is that, you know, previously it killed many, many, many people. And 
we have to keep it safe. So uh, just be aware of it. Check in, make a make a decision of how you're going to and, and call the professionals. Um, so these websites, this website is Bright Hub Engineering. You know, they have a whole list at the bottom of the page. What does it say? It is there. Uh, references and image credits. So uh, the US EPA, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, all these doctors. So everything that they put on here, he's also got references, which is great. So if you go to his website, which is uh, brighthubengineering.com, and it's the history of water chlorination, uh, a major public health advance, uh, you know, check it out. Think it's a good thing, and then these other companies. So all the water companies, all the water professionals in your hometown, uh, wherever you are, your your main water treatment plant and your sewer uh, or wastewater treatment plants, um, your well and pump companies. Those guys, when you're out in the woods and you don't have piped water coming from a city, you have the water and pump companies, and they are professionals and they know what it's all about as well. That's their job. Uh, the one I worked for is over a hundred years old. Um, a couple of the other ones in the neighborhood are more than 60 years old. You know, they've been doing it a long time. And with that, it's continuous study because you have to get your CEUs, your, your continuing education units for, for water treatment professionals and distribution professionals um, and the backflow professionals. So all these different licenses in order to do these things, you have to be uh, certified. And you have to know and you have to work under somebody who knows more than you do. Right. So the boss is is uh, your your resource. And then we have the uh, American Water Works Association and, and various each state has their own association. Um, and everybody works together as one big team and there's continuous training and there's continuous learning. Um, and there's always answers out for those professionals in order to support and help you. So here the EPA has on their website, it's a link, Understanding the Safe Drinking Water Act. So the Safe Drinking Water Act was enacted in 1974 to protect public health by regulating the nation's public drinking water supply. The law was amended in 1986 and then again in 1996 and requires many actions to protect drinking water and its sources, rivers, lakes, reservoirs, springs, groundwater wells. So the Safe Water Drinking Act does not regulate uh, connections that serve 25 or, or fewer people, so private wells, but everything greater than 25 and over, <clears throat> then they regulate. And uh, it authorizes the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, to set national health-based standards for drinking water to protect against both naturally occurring and man-made contaminants that may be found in drinking water. The EPA, states, and water systems then work together to make sure that these standards are met. Millions of Americans receive high-quality drinking water every day from the public water system, which may be publicly or privately owned. Nonetheless, drinking water safely cannot be taken for granted. And drinking water safety cannot be taken for granted. There are a number of threats to drinking water, improperly disposed of chemicals, animal waste, pesticides, human threats, wastes injected underground, and naturally occurring substances that can all contaminate drinking water. Likewise, drinking water that is not properly treated or disinfected, or which travels through 
in improperly maintained distribution system may also pose a health risk. Originally, the Safe Water Drinking Act focused primarily on treatment as a means for providing safe drinking water at the tap. The 1996 amendment greatly enhanced the existing law by recognizing source water protection, operator training, funding for water system improvements, and public information as important components of safe drinking water. This approach ensures the quality of drinking water by protecting it from the source to the tap. All right, all my best to you. Happy holidays here in the United States and around the world. I really appreciate, you know, I look, I have, uh, gosh, all over the world. And it's really exciting to me and, and I appreciate it. So if, if you're anywhere around the world and you care to share some information on food or water safety, uh, you know, ping me, shoot me a, uh, uh, information and uh, I'd love to see it and potentially share it. All right. Visit the website at sonomafoodsafety.com and the podcast site at foodsafetyedu. All my best, and remember, practice makes better.